The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. John Reganold. He is a Regents Professor of Soil Science and Agroecology at Washington State University in Pullman. He has spent 30 years bringing a blend of innovative research and teaching on sustainable farming systems into the mainstream of higher education and food production. His research has measured the effects of organic, integrated, and conventional farming systems on productivity, financial performance, environmental quality, and social well-being on five continents. I read his recent blog post for the Union of Concerned Scientists titled, Organic Agriculture is Key to Helping Feed the World Sustainably, and I knew I wanted to bring him to Food Sooth Radio listeners. Welcome, Dr. Reganold. Oh, thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, I have to first ask you a very important question. You're a soil scientist. What piqued your interest about soil? What got you into soil science? Well, in the 70s, I was thinking of maybe going to law school or doing something else. And uh, I was actually getting a bachelor's degree in German, but I was also pre-med, so I had a lot of science classes. And the environmental movement was a big concern in the 70s, big energy crisis and so I thought I want to get involved with the environment, and soils seemed to me to be kind of at the crest of the wave. So I applied to grad school at UC Berkeley. They have a department of soil science. I had a friend that was getting a bachelor's degree, and he talked to me a lot about it. And it just seemed it took into account biology, physics, chemistry, ecology. It seemed so well-rounded, and it seemed that it could be something that could address the you know, some of the concerns in the environmental movement. So I moved forward and got a master's at Berkeley and then went on and got a Ph.D. at UC Davis. It's so interesting because I don't think in the 70s we were aware of or at least talking about the microbiome and how our gut microbes are so key today to health and wellness. And so I think it's interesting that you had this pre-med leaning, and here you are, a soil scientist, you were really ahead of the curve. And I probably at the time wasn't thinking, I have to be honest, too much about the microbiome. Uh, I was certainly interested in soil microbiology, but I was more interested in the big picture, what we're doing with our farming systems and the landscape, what we're doing with our landscapes and how we're managing them. And it's all related. The microbiology is a big part of that. But I was, you know, that really, just the big picture stuff really got me into the area. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I feel, and you do too, I'm sure, that food and farming has such transformative power for our environment, for future generations, that it's really important for those of us who work in public health to have conversations with people who work in farming systems. So here we are right now. Tell me, I'm curious about terminology, and I think that a lot of words are kicked around. I know sustainability is used a lot, and there are some definitions, but there's no legal 
consequence for using the word sustainable incorrectly. And then there's also this word conventional, organic. I wonder if you could give us some wisdom about how we want to use those terms. What is the difference between organic and conventional farming? What does that mean? Oh, okay. So I think a lot of people and consumers in general think that farming practices are either organic or they're conventional. And that's not exactly true. Organic farming and conventional farming can be pictured as bookends on a shelf with all these other farming systems sitting as books in between. So on one side, you would have organic and biodynamic farming. Biodynamic would be a type of organic system. And organic farming that basically uh, or virtually doesn't use synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. It does use fertilizers and pesticides, but they're natural and uses a blend of crop rotations, diversity, and other methods that are more natural for the environment versus conventional at the other end, which is pretty much high, usually considered high-intensity, high-input agriculture with chemical pesticides and fertilizers. But there's all these systems in between. So, for example, we have integrated farming systems, and they're actually certified in Europe. Uh, you could go to Switzerland and you can go into a store and buy organic apples, integrated apples, conventional apples. And integrated farmers are basically kind of the best of both the organic and the conventional world. They are probably using 70-80% of organic practices, so they have to build the soil, they have to crop rotate, they have to use cover crops and green manure crops. But if they need to come in, if they're having a problem with weeds or a particular insect, they can come in and use a synthetic pesticide or fertilizer. So they're, they're more integrated in their approach. And then we have farmers out here where I am. We're out in grain country in eastern Washington, a lot of wheat, barley, peas, and lentils. And you have in the Midwest a lot of corn and soybean. There are a number of farmers that are no-till but they actually go beyond no-till. They're no-till, and they have complex crop rotations. So they're rotating, say, three years of different crops, and they're keeping the ground covered at all times. And that's a pretty cool system because it's because of the rotations and because of not mold bore plowing. And so we have those farmers. We have farmers that are mixed crop livestock farmers that grow both crops, like grains, and they have livestock, so they bring livestock in the system, and it actually benefits the soil. It takes away some of the weed pressure because the animals, like sheep, for example, they'll eat the weeds, but at the same time, the farmer can sell the sheep to have extra income that way. So there are those systems, and there are others, too. Agroforestry is used quite a bit. A number of smallholder farmers around the world use these agroforestry systems that are real environmental. And they're neither organic or conventional necessarily. They fit in that middle, and there are many others. And so I think a lot of people think, well, oh, that food I just bought's not it's not organic. Yeah, it's got to be conventional. Or, well, it's not conventional. It's got to be organic. No, it could actually be integrated, which is certified. And there, out here where I am, there are conservation farming, no-till farmers that are certified by the Food Alliance, and they call themselves Shepherd's Grain and people buy their food in the store as shepherd's grain, and it is certified. It has to meet certain sustainability goals. So there's a wide range of systems. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think that from a consumer perspective, without an independent certifier to assure that the label means something, that's right. where we run into problems. And I think that's why the organic label has been so trustworthy. But as you say, out west, you've got different labels that also have certification and a way to verify that what a farmer is telling you is actually the way it is. Yep. And there are food stores. So, for example, Whole Foods would be one, but there are others that will buy directly from farmers, and they'll put the picture of the farmer right in the store above their product and show what the practices are that they're using. And they'll do this with our shepherd's grain farmers here, but the co-ops will do it too. Our our co-op sometimes will, you know, mention the name of a farmer, background, how the crop is grown, and then you can see the bin of carrots, or it could be a box of grain, and you know what the practices are. And then the other thing, consumers are becoming more enlightened because there's more information. For example, you have your radio show, I'm on your radio show, people are reading, they're concerned about food. People are going to farmer's markets. They're not just buying from farmer's markets. They're actually meeting particular farmers. And, they're, and they buy sometimes from particular farmers because they know what their practices are. And sometimes those farmers are more integrated in their approach than organic, but they trust those farmers. And I think, and then people are also doing CSAs where they get food baskets. They go to the, out to a farm, pick up a food basket, or they have a food basket delivered to their house, and they tend to be people who are more knowledgeable of the food system. They're very much into eating, say, a more plant-based diet, and it's good. Mm-hmm. I agree. More information is better, and it's also difficult sometimes for consumers to navigate so much information that's coming at them with conflicting information. So, for example, I loved the blog post that you wrote for the Union of Concerned Scientists because it really helped to solidify what some important factors are that we hear pro and con. So, for example, you addressed the yield question. We may be told by more the industrial system that there's no way we're going to feed the world. There's no way that we can produce high yields using systems that are not using industrial high input methods. And yet you address that. You talk about the environment, you talk about profitability, and you also talk about well-being, which is such an important concept that is not given nearly enough attention. Jobs, child health, water quality in a community. And so why don't we go through some of those issues. I want to talk about the yield question because it's something that comes up all the time in light of climate change. Can we use organic methods to feed the world? Well, it's interesting because I've been in rooms before where it could be a room of 100 people and this could be growers, consumers, and scientists, and someone will get up and say, well, organic farming can't feed the world. And actually, conventional farming can't feed the world. So my belief is that no one system is going to feed the world. It's a nice hypothetical question that I haven't actually done all the metrics and the analyses. Could organic farming, could, in other words, if every farmer were organic, could we feed the world? It's possible. Don't really know. But I do know that if you are looking at 
the four sustainability goals in the areas of production, that's number one, two, environment, three, profitability or economics, and four, social well-being, that strict conventional isn't doing it. We have, it's great for production, but it doesn't do as well in the environment or in the social area, and sometimes not even in the economic area as a number of these other systems. So it really is kind of what people are thinking. If people are thinking, you know, I don't really care about the four areas of sustainability. I just care about the one, production, yield. Well, then you're fine with conventional. But if you're thinking about future, stewardship, grandchildren, those kinds of things, then you got to start bringing in, well, wait a minute now, what are these systems doing to the environment? Are they going to be profitable over a long period of time? And how about socially? Are they going to be good for workers? And are they going to be good for communities? Those kinds of things. And if you're thinking then of multiple sustainability goals, then organic starts to shine because even though, you know, if you just take yield, it doesn't have the yields of organic. On average, it's probably 15 to 20% lower. And there have been so many studies now done comparing organic with conventional. And a lot of them have been in the yield area that we now have five what they call reviews or meta-analyses that put all these individual studies into a computer where you can compare apples, oranges, and wheat and come out with these figures. And the yield differences, organic doesn't do as well. It's usually anywhere from 8 to 25% lower. Those are the average range. If you, But there are, you know, there are some farmers that are organic that can do better, and there are some farmers that are organic that don't do well at all. But in general it turns out to be about 15 20% lower and so in that sense organic could do better for yield but at the same time if you're concerned about quality of food organic has less to no pesticide residues organic the the studies that have been done are starting to indicate that organic probably is more nutrient dense meaning probably higher vitamin C fruits and vegetables also antioxidants higher, and then in your milk you have more omega-3s. And and the evidence is starting to lean in that direction. It's not final, but it looks pretty good for organic. And then if you start looking at the environment, things like nitrate leaching, greenhouse gas emissions, soil erosion, building the soil with getting more carbon in the soil, those kinds of things, biodiversity, because we don't want to keep losing biodiversity, then organic farming wins hands down. So the environment is big, and that really, organic really shines in that area. If you say, well, we got to make money. Farmers, you know, you're not sustainable unless you make money. You can produce food, you can be environmental, but if you're not making money, that's not sustainable. And so there have been a number of studies done, so many that, like, probably about 50. And when you look at a meta-analysis, in fact, a colleague and I actually did the meta-analysis a couple of years ago, organic is more profitable. And part of it is, and this is over a 40-year time period, you could say part of it is that organic farmers get a premium. In other words, a price premium. The farmer gets higher prices for an organic product than a conventional farmer. It's not the premium that you and I as a consumer pay at the store. 
it's the premium that the farmer gets. That's different. Those two can be very different. And that premium's been averaging about 30% over the last 40 years. It's held pretty constant. And the yields, though, are lower. We found in our study yields were about 15 to 18% lower, but the premium more than makes up for those lower yields. And then when you look at social well-being, not a lot of studies on social well-being. It's the one area we need to do more, but there have been a few, and the initial evidence kind of leans gives organic a little bit of an edge. And so when you put all four of those areas of sustainability together, organic looks pretty good, and so do some of these other systems like integrated and conservation farming. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are having a conversation with Dr. John Reganold. He is a Regents Professor of Soil Science and Agroecology at Washington State University in Pullman. I want to bring forth something else that you included in your blog that I think is very important because I sense that there is a fear message about feeding the world. Oh my gosh, we're going to have all of these more people on the planet. What are we going to do? We have to have technology and modern farming. And you say, well, actually, we already produce enough food to more than feed the world's 7.4 billion people, but we don't provide adequate access to all individuals. And I think that must be an overriding message when we consider how we are going to produce food in the future. Oh, yeah. So you can look at the Food and Ag Organization, FAO, which is sort of like the International Agriculture Organization, and they would be comparable, I mean, but bigger than our U.S. Department of Ag for the United States. FAO is for the whole world, and they put out just incredible, they have a great website, and they put out all these figures. And so they actually put out how many calories per person we're producing a year. And I think last year, which is probably the most recent uh, worldwide, we were producing something like 2,800, 2,900 calories per person, and that is after food waste. So when you take into account, because there's a lot of talk about food waste, and it's so important we don't waste food, and that figure hovers around 30% in both developed countries and less developed countries, but for different reasons. And if you count that 30%, we still produce about 28, 2,900 calories per person. Then you say, well, okay, what do we need? And and people think we need different things, but it's anywhere from 2,100 to 2,300, 2,400 calories a day. Well, then you think, well, goodness, 7.4 billion people, we're producing enough now. So are we all getting the food? (laughs) Then then you look at their figures and you say, well, of the 7.4 billion, and it changes every year, there's probably about 700 to 800 million, so not quite a billion, but close, that don't get enough. You know, they're malnourished, they don't get enough calories, you know, they're not getting enough nutrition. Then you say, well, that's interesting, but we produce enough. How many people are overweight and obese? It's about 2 billion. Mm -hmm. So just looking at the figure 2 billion versus, even if you say the 800 million is a billion, the 2 billion is more than a billion, you can see that, well, there's plenty of calories some people are getting more than enough calories and some aren't. So that's another piece of evidence that we're producing enough. So to me, it's not so much the calories. It's 
access for people. And some countries produce, you know, obviously we're, we have incredible soils here in the U.S. We have technology, we have money, and our farmers produce a lot of food, and we export a lot. There are some countries like Africa where their soils aren't as good. They don't have the technology in some places or the money. There are political issues, and so their yields could be higher, and they could do better. And we want them to do better. But the issue is, okay, so then you think, well, $7.4 billion, it's going to be 9 to $10 billion by 2050. And what are we going to do then? Well, if we use good farming practices, I think we can actually feed the 9 or $10 billion sustainably. But I think also one of the things that we don't talk about, we don't really talk about population, and that's sort of the elephant in the room. I mean, if you were to say to scientists in general, agricultural scientists, hey, you know what, how about if we only have 8.5 billion people by 2050? That'd take a lot of pressure off plant breeders and crop breeders and take a lot of pressure off, off soil scientists like because that means we're going to have to, you know, if it's 10 billion, we have to really intensify our, our cropping and we might have more environmental issues and we have to plan for things differently, but we just don't really want to talk about population growth and I think I think that's something that we need to address. I agree. We also don't like to talk about environmental contamination and in the public health world when we talk about a lot of the chronic diseases that affect those of us in the United States at least heart disease and cancer we talk about food and we talk about exercise but we don't talk enough about environmental contamination. And years ago, I was at a conference, and there was a farmer in the room, and I was presenting the three stools of sustainability, the social, the economic, and the environmental. And he raised his hand, and he said, you know, I have to tell you, I think that the environmental leg needs to be bigger than the other two, because if we contaminate the environment, we are not going to have production, we're not going to have good economic returns, nor will we have public health. So I appreciate the conversation around ecosystem services and protecting our water, our most important nutrient, I might add. Yep, and I agree. And there have been studies done. There are actually um, these international group of scientists that have put out these big studies. And they, the first one was about six years ago, and then five years later they did another one a year ago where they look at planetary boundaries, and I think they had nine planetary boundaries and are we exceeding certain areas? So, for example, biodiversity loss is is very important. Well, is biodiversity loss a big enough issue that we've exceeded the boundary where we're past that and we really need to do something about it, like right now? And the three of the nine that were the most pending that were past their safe zone were nutrient pollution, mainly nitrogen and phosphorus. That was actually number one. Hmm. Number two, I think, was biodiversity loss, and number three was climate change. And those were the big three. And then in the most recent study a year ago, they they also said land clearing was a, was a fourth. And so when you mention nutrient pollution, you bet. It's huge. It's something that – and there are some places where we actually – we're actually – there are are places where people, communities, farmers are doing something about it. 
and there are places we're not, but it's it's a big issue. Well, I am going to provide links for our listeners to your website, but also the Union of Concerned Scientists blog, as well as your excellent review article, Organic Agriculture in the 21st Century. And the reason why I like this article so much is because, you know, we can throw numbers around and facts around, and it's hard, I think, to get our heads around these topics. But you've got a beautiful graphic the assessment of organic farming relative to conventional farming in the four major areas of sustainability. And you give us a beautiful visual to see where, which areas organic truly has the advantage. And if you look at this image, it makes it pretty clear that by not using so many chemical inputs, we really are protecting those few factors that you recently mentioned that mean so much, including biodiversity and protecting our environment with reduced chemical contaminants. Yep. I like yeah, that. Well, I appreciate that. The, you're talking about the flower diagram yes. with the petals. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was, that took a long time to put together. But that's, I've had, I think I've had more comments positively about that diagram and uh, more and more people are actually wanting to borrow it and use it and they use it in their talks and stuff. So that's pretty neat. Yeah. Well, if you're a visual learner, like most of us, this makes a lot of these concepts very clear And in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of overall well-being. You know, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to give you a chance to bring forth anything from your research and the insights that you've gained over the years to share with our listeners. Yeah, I think, well, I think uh, just a couple things. One, I think... You know, we look at farmers a lot, and it's really easy for consumers just to blame farmers. And farmers face so many decisions because there are so many policies and environmental rules and legislation that they face on what they're going to do every year. And it's not, you know, the farmers have responsibility, there's no question, but the consumers may play actually a bigger role in the food that they choose. And just the fact today that consumers are choosing a more plant-based diet and they're choosing foods that are better for them, farmers are reacting to that. We have, we have more organic and integrated food. We have these farmers that are shifting to no-till. And consumers also not only have a say in what they eat, but how much they eat. And so I think that we as consumers need to pay more attention to what we do individually and what, and then of course, what our families do, what our best friends do, and start there, and get to know a farmer or mm-hmm. farmers. They're they're really a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, one quick question: the farm bill sure. is coming up for discussion. Which aspects or policies would you like to see changed first and foremost, so that we can call our representatives and senators and ask for those? Well, it'd be great to the two things I would push for more research funding for organic agriculture research. And there actually uh, there actually is a, a movement in that area right now. And then also to help farmers transition to organic, to put some money in there. There is some money in there now, but to actually have more money to actually help farmers because that when they transition from conventional to organic, it's really difficult. And if they had difficult financially. If they had some money to help them in that transition, it would be great. 
Mm-hmm. Rewarding good behavior is always good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Well, Dr. Reganald, I want to thank you for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And thanks especially to Dr. John Reganald, Regents Professor of Soil Science and Agroecology at Washington State University in Pullman. I will provide links to your website and the two articles that you wrote. And I want to thank you so much for your research. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Melinda. Thank you. 